You know, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. You know, the thing is, we're here now, so just be here now. That's all I gotta say. Welcome to Unhinged, episode 40, recorded February 19th, 2017. Episode 40. The big 4-0. That's crazy. That's a lot of episodes. It's 40. It is 40. Yeah, it's not 39. Yeah, well, that was last show. This right. one is 40. We just started it, actually, in case you were away yes. from your computer. Yes, episode 40. Uh, I remember our very first episode, how far we've come. Ah, the days of yore. The following podcast is presented in audio format only. Therefore, viewer discretion is strongly advised. Welcome to Unhinged, the podcast that will have you going mental as we talk about life and all its twists and turns. With your hosts, the guys from the Blue Room. Yes, Doug and Ed. And now, Doug and Ed. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Um, I'm Ed Caggiani. I'm not. He's not. I'm Doug <laughs> Warren. Yes. So. Yes. Glad I got that. This out. is our very first podcast. Um, we'll need to explain a little bit about who we are. Um, my name is Ed Caggiani. Um, you said that already. I said that already. Thank you. I'm very repetitive. Uh, I'm also very repetitive. Yes, I say things a lot. Uh, I tend to say things a lot over and over again. <laughs> he does. So that was our very first episode. Um, the intro was very different than what we have now. Definitely, and uh, the sound quality wasn't the way it is now. No, not even close. <laughs> We've come a long way. Yeah. Um so there wasn't much meat in that episode. It was mostly just an introduction. Uh, we went on uh, in subsequent episodes to delve deeper into, uh, you know, Doug's issues. And uh, the third episode, we talked a lot about his DBS, uh, but also about celebrity suicides. The point is awareness, teaching awareness, and having podcasts like ours that um, can educate people and make them realize uh, how serious these things are and how communication is utterly important Yes, amongst friends, amongst family. And uh, we can avoid some of these things because these are not things, you don't see it just like they're in a wheelchair. We can see they have a problem. Right, Mental right. Health, you can't see it. Uh, so there are people like we were talking about comedians, uh, you, you know, you hear, you see a great routine and then two days on the news, the guy overdosed with heroin. Yeah. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman came off a golden globe Capote, um, performance and then overdoses on heroin. Uh, yeah. he didn't do that for fun. He had an underlying mental health issue. You don't see it. And, uh. Well, and as, as unfortunate as it is, um, 
in a way, it's a it's a positive thing to get the message out when people in the public spotlight are hit by this. Robin Williams, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, even Cody Glode here, an up and comer. Uh, you know, it makes the news because of who they are, and and trying to get the any positive out of it, at least for me, is hey we're getting the message out. People are, are starting to hear about it more because these are famous people. It's really unfortunate it happens to anybody, uh, but the fact that they're famous brings it a little bit more into the, the spotlight, uh, which in, in a way is kind of a positive thing. And that was one of the many times that we covered uh, the impact that celebrities have uh, in getting the word out about mental health. Yes, uh, and then in episode five, uh, we delved into uh, self-medicating. Um, we touched a little on medical uh, marijuana, but uh, self-medicating was a, a major part of that show, and we actually started to sort of start to uh, experiment with a little ear candy and put a quote to music, an Edgar Allan Poe uh, quote, um, and then talked a little bit about self-medication. Edgar Allan Poe wrote, I have absolutely no pleasure in the stimulants in which I sometimes so madly indulge. It's not been in the pursuit of pleasure that I've periled life and reputation and reason. It's been the desperate attempt to escape from torturing memories, from a sense of insupportable loneliness and a dread of some strange impending doom obviously it's there uh whether it's your cognizant or it's your it's subconscious or not but if you're if you're you know if everyone's drinking you know eight beers and you're still going at 15 there's you know there's a reason for that mm -hmm. and it wasn't because of tolerance because i was you know uh five eight and 150 soaking wet you know so so it wasn't a tolerance thing it was uh yeah. it was the beginning of a lifelong um uh, period of self-medicating yeah self-medication that's that's a topic that definitely comes up in a lot of our shows uh and will again yeah i mean it's it's just a, a huge part of how a lot of people uh, with mental issues deal with it. Yeah, unfortunately so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it becomes a dual diagnosis situation. And moving ahead, uh, in episode number eight, we discuss uh, the details of something you've struggled with your whole life, and that's treatment-resistant depression, or TRD. Uh, and this is also the first show where we had a special guest. Yes, our friend Nurit Adler, a psychotherapist uh, right here in Toronto. And in this uh, particular clip, um, she's actually elaborating on what we were discussing, um, how uh, the disease is such a malignant disease and it tends to separate friends and family. I think the biggest part for families, if I can, I can try and simplify it, is they take it personally. 
Right. So when yes. when somebody isn't happy around them, and then you know might escalate from unhappy to angry to behaving badly to not being communicative and not participating in whatever is going on, the first thing that the people around them do is say, "Why are you mad at me? Right. What did I do to you?" And the difficulties often during the severest parts of the depression, the person isn't really capable of communicating and saying, actually, it's got nothing to do with you. This is all internal. I feel like shit and I, I don't know how to get out of it, and I don't know how to make myself feel better, and I feel like I'm sinking in quicksand. Mm-hmm. And they're not, they don't have the wherewithal to explain all that and to be communicative. So what it does is it creates a vicious cycle of, oh, you're pissed off again? Yeah, Nurit was great. She had many good points on a lot of subjects, and we really hope to have her back on sometime in the future. Yeah, that went very well. Uh, well, moving on, we had show 10, uh, which was um, featuring uh, my uncle, Murray Goldsmith, and uh, he had a lot of interesting uh, things to say, and um, uh, one in particular clip that I thought was interesting was uh, when I was talking about uh, a sort of a classic symptom of uh, sort of a displaced childhood and possible early uh, signs of uh, mental illness uh, was that I wet my bed up until I was 13 or 14 years old. So here's his comment on that. I'll tell you how it all works. It's very, very simple. Our belief system is responsible for the results we have each and every day. And when we change our beliefs, we change our results. If you believe that you no longer have a bedwetting problem, then you don't. Right. It's that mm-hmm. simple. Most people wet the bed going to bed worried that they're going to wet the bed. Right. So hypnosis really is a total concentration on any one given subject. Well, I found like another couple of clips too that I want to play, um, both regarding hypnosis. Um, and one of them is uh, kind of a funny story about a bunch of skeptics. Uh, that he had run across, and also um, something about a clerk at a local store he frequented. Yeah, I love this story. This is great. Hypnosis is a total state of relaxation. Mm. And when you are totally relaxed, we produce endorphins, our natural healing hormone. Yes. And it's, it's produced when you're laughing, when you're listening to good music, when you're totally relaxed, it's produced. Are you naturally more suggestible when you're in that type of a mood or state? No. You're in total control. Unless you believe you're not. <laughs> it's your belief system. You've got to remember that. In other words, if you don't believe that I can help you, then I can't. Right. Right. If I if I believe I remember you told me, you know, you taught me the first thing was that if I can believe you can hypnotize me, I can, you know, it's going to work. That's right. And and then you went out and hypnotized your friend. Yeah, that was fun. I had a, <laughs> a, a lot of fun that. having him running around the block yeah. and having his foot stuck to the floor and yeah. <laughs> he was very suggestible. <laughs> So th- this this means uh, so one of my questions I have for you is that uh, some people always say 
I can't be hypnotized. My mind is too strong. So, so basically what you're saying is if you actually say that, if you believe you can't be hypnotized, you can't be hypnotized. That's right. If you believe it, but I may change your mind. <laughs> I was just going to say, if anyone could do it, you could turn some of those people around, couldn't you? And, and if so, how would you do that? What would be an example of how you would do that? I spoke in Atlanta to 800 hypnotists who were in the audience. Uh -huh. And my, that was tough. my subject was nonverbal hypnosis. And they didn't know what it was, but I had spoken the year before. So they, I came in and I, and I stood up and I said, what I want is 12 people that believe they can be hypnotized to come up on the stage. And I want 12 people who don't believe they can be hypnotized to come up on the stage. Right, and 24 right. people came up on the stage and I said, now I want you to close your eyes and I'm going to hypnotize you non-verbally. <laughs> and one by one, they went into a state of hypnosis Probably within three minutes, they were all in a state of hypnosis. And what took place there was even the people coming up on stage didn't understand why I would have them up there if I wasn't going to do it. You don't, <laughs> right. you don't do that in front of a crowd of people. So they sit in the chair. Now each one knows what it's supposed to feel like. And they're saying to themselves, oh, my head is getting heavier. He must be doing And when they hear the guy next to them go, they go. And it just becomes that the belief system makes it happen. So you were going to yeah. give us another example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was uh, walking through Placeville Marie in Montreal where I used to go for a haircut. And this cashier would never look at me because she was afraid if she looked at me, she would go into a state of hypnosis. <laughs> and I walked by once and her back was to me and I walked up to her and I tapped her on the shoulder. She looked at me, I said, sleep, and she fell to a clump <laughs> on the floor. Oh my God. It had nothing to do with me. <laughs> that's unbelievable. So that's our belief system again. And you know, one of the things that uh, that people have to understand is nothing goes to our subconscious unless we consciously put it there. Mm -hmm. And if we believe in something we put that into our subconscious, it becomes automatic. And we've done that ever since we were two years old, probably yeah. before that. Yeah, that was a good show. We, uh, I think we both really enjoyed that one. Yeah, Murray's great. Thanks to Murray on that. Uh, after that, we actually went into uh, our next show. We talked about something that's a little bit more out of the box uh, for us. We were talking about the differences between psychopaths and sociopaths. And uh, here's a clip from that show from The Big Think that describes an interesting situation. We all know about the, uh, the psychopaths' enhanced killer instinct, their, uh, their finely tuned vulnerability antennae. But it may uh, surprise you to know that there are some situations in which psychopaths are actually more adept at saving lives. Uh, than they are at taking them. So let me give you uh, an example of what I mean by that, okay? Imagine you've got a train and it's hurtling down a track. In its path, five people are trapped on the line and cannot escape. Fortunately, you can flick a switch which diverts the train down a fork in that track away from those five people, but at a price. 
there is another person trapped down that fork and the train will kill them instead. Question, should you flick the switch? Now, most people uh, have little trouble deciding what to do under those circumstances. Uh, though the, the thought of flicking the switch isn't exactly a nice one, uh, the utilitarian choice, as it were, killing just the one person instead of the five, represents the least worst option. Okay? But now let me give you uh, a variation. You've got a train speeding out of control down a track, um, and it's going to plough into five people on the line. But this time you are standing behind a very large stranger on a footbridge above that track. The only way to save the people is to heave the stranger over. He will fall to a certain death, but his considerable bulk will block the train, saving five lives. Now we've got what we might call a real dilemma on our hands, okay? While the score in lives is precisely the same as in the first scenario, five to one, one's choice of action appears far trickier. Now, why should that be? Well, the reason it turns out all boils down to temperature, okay? Case one represents what we might call an impersonal dilemma. It involves those areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the posterior parietal cortex, in particular, uh, the anterior parasingulate cortex, the temporal pole, and the superior temporal sulcus, bit of neuroanatomy for you there, uh, primarily responsible uh, for what we call cold empathy, for reasoning and rational thought. Case two, on the other hand, represents what we might call uh, a personal dilemma. Uh, it involves the emotion center of the brain, known as the amygdala, uh, the circuitry of hot empathy, um, what we might call the feeling of feeling what another person is feeling. Now, psychopaths, just like most normal members of the population, have no trouble at all with case one. They flick the switch and the train diverts accordingly, killing just the one person instead of the five. But this is where the plot thickens. Quite unlike normal members of the population, psychopaths also experience little difficulty with case two. Psychopaths, without a moment's hesitation, are perfectly willing to chuck the fat guy over the rails if that's what the doctor orders. Now, moreover, this difference in behaviour has a distinct neural signature. Uh, the pattern of brain activation in both normal people and psychopaths is identical on the presentation of the impersonal moral dilemma, but radically different when things start to get a bit more personal. Imagine that I were to hook you up to a brain scanner, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and were to present you with those two dilemmas, okay? What would I observe as you went about trying to solve them? Well, at the precise moment that the nature of the dilemma switches from impersonal to personal, I would see the emotion center of your brain, your amygdala, and related brain circuits, the, the medial orbitofrontal cortex, for example, light up like a pinball machine. I would witness the, the moment, in other words, when emotion puts its money in the slot. But in psychopaths, I would see precisely nothing. And the passage from impersonal to personal would slip by unnoticed because that emotion neighborhood of their, their brains, that emotional zip code, has a neural curfew. And that's why they're perfectly happy to chuck that fat guy over the side without even batting an eye. Yeah, I really uh, I enjoyed this show um, because we talked a lot about 
uh, different serial killers, famous serial killers. And one that I found uh, particularly chilling was when you talked about Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer got to to the point where he was actually trying to do homemade lobotomies. And he would drill into the skull, into the frontal lobe, if you will, not that he knew it, but into the front of the skull and drill in and try and create a sort of a sexual zombie uh, that he can just use at his leisure. Um, yeah, sick. And, and the other sick thing was uh, that he would really get off on uh, strangulation and taking the breath out of the victim and have his ear to, to their mouths and whatever way he was using to asphyxiate or whatever he was doing with them, um, he would listen for when the air left and they either expired or, the, or passed out. Mm-hmm. And then he would revive them and then do it over and over again. So the ultimate sense of control. So after that, we had an episode about psychopharmacology and pharmacogenetics. Yeah, we had a lot of good uh, topical stuff, of course, covering uh, all about psychiatric medications, but also the uh, CAMH genetic study. And that's uh, Mm -hmm. obviously the latest, the forefront of... uh, technology for mental health yeah and i think i uh i took the ham d test in that episode uh that's episode right. 12 that's right. that was interesting yeah uh after that we actually had an episode where we read from your journal from one of your stints at the mental hospital uh yes and, uh, that was a tough show i was in uh, quite the relapse there yeah you were yeah and then the, the show right after that episode 14 uh, we actually took some texts that we were uh, having back and forth with each other uh, and and read them out uh, on the episode. Uh, and it kind of shows how your mental state at the time was, was uh, basically relapsing. Yeah, I figured something was up. You were suspiciously quiet. I didn't hear anything from you all day. It's just a difficult day. This money thing is something that sucks the life out of me. Eight fucking days left. Zero dollars. It just sucks. Sorry about that. I I wish there was an easy way to get you money instantly from here. Here? Where? From my account to yours. You've done enough. It's not your problem. It's all the fucking government, and there's no other resources, and the banks don't give a shit either. I'm so anxious, my hands are shaking, and all I need is one damn cigarette and enough money to get a pack of gum, for God's sake. As an advocate and as a human, I'm disgusted because it's just wrong for those who've gone through major health issues like this. I got so desperate, I called the bank to see if they would reverse the last couple of monthly fees or something, just so at least have some bit of money. After telling them how I've been banking with them for a decade now, but I got nothing. Yeah, I can't see banks being receptive to anything like that. No, that would be human. What is human? Who the hell knows? Disease plus abject poverty 
plus an uncertain future equals shit. Yeah, that's that's a hard one to hear. Uh, but what stands out most is just uh, you could recognize there, you know, not just the depression, but how it manifests into that rage and anger and yeah, the words I was using. And I mean, geez, you know, I was kind of getting a little frightened there. Yeah. Uh, well, unfortunately, that's when um, it started. Your re- basically your relapse started, uh, and we had a couple episodes. Uh, one episode where we thought you were still in remission, but the day after we recorded that episode, uh, your relapse really hit hard. And then we yeah, had, that was the shits. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then we had the two episodes uh, about the relapse, and the second one in particular. Uh, relapse part two, the call. This is episode 18. This was one where, uh, I was recording a phone conversation that we were having, uh, and later told you, and, um, and we used that as the episode because it was very powerful. And well, yeah, I hadn't talked to anyone in, in a long time. It was, I don't know, it was a few weeks, I think. Yeah. And then I just, but I knew that I had to reach out to you and that had been after you had sent my cousin to knock on my door. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but I just, I knew I had to, to call and especially for the show, I really felt that obligation. Yeah. So here's, here's a clip that shows really how bad uh, you, you can get with uh, a mental illness. I, I hate seeing you like this and you know, I just, I want it over, but you can't. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no escape from it. There's no, you know, you're locked inside yourself. Yeah. It's, it's a hell. It's a living hell. It's the only way to describe it, you know. The, the thing that, that really got me was how quickly things turned around, like got bad. I told you it can happen the next, just it's, it's after a night of sleep and you don't know what's going to happen the next morning. Yeah. It's terrible. It gave me two and a half months. Oh, thank you. It was a nice little vacation. And you get home and you're back and, you know, mm-hmm. I keep going as long as I can keep going. There'll yeah. be a breaking point, though, if it doesn't get clear. I know there'll be at some point where, you you know, everybody's got a, you know, breaking point. What, what do you mean by that? It just sucks the life out of you. And it's just where you can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. I'll literally go crazy, or I'm just gotta stop it. It's hard to hear that, hard to say it. Yeah, but it's just you know I can't take this anymore. You know, fuck. How well, long does one? You know, you turn fifty, and there's nothing. There's not you know, just nothing to celebrate. That's why I've never been able to celebrate my birthday anymore. It's like it's just I don't want to celebrate me. It's terrible. <laughs> You know, so I started feeling good about myself a little bit. Just, oh, really? You're asking me for advice, all these little things. And then it's gone. Boom. One night. Yeah, it's but terrible. intellectually, it's you have to know that uh, that it's all because of the disease. It's not has nothing to do with people no longer wanting your advice or needing your advice or anything like that, you know? It's just your brain making you think that. I know, but it's how long can you? But I gotta live that. I know. It's like it's it's more powerful than than even 
logic, you know. I mean, everything I do when I'm severe, it's not logical. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, what, what a waste of fucking two and a half months, you know. Just throw it out like it never happened because then you're just back and that's it. It's just a, it's just a little break. You get a little break. You know, here we'll give you a couple of months there. Enjoy it, and the devil will be back to see you. You know, I don't know what to do. I really, I'm just, I really don't know what to do. Yeah, that was probably the most difficult episode uh, to listen to, uh, at least for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. It really, that episode... Uh, really kind of started the whole period of your ups and downs. Uh, so between episodes 17 and 29, uh, you had a lot of ups and downs and there was a lot of pain and drama. Uh, I'm going through the list of our episode names uh, between 17 and 29, and you can tell just from the names alone. You know, we've got relapse part one and two. Uh, we've got fear, trepidations. And then we move on to some happier <laughs> names like Helplessly Hoping, Happy Days, Carpe Diem, uh, Baby Step. So it seems like you were feeling better at that point. And then we go back to Eyes Are Green, which is a reference to the Hulk. And that meant that you were feeling both, uh, you know, very anxious and, and but yet not completely turned. Uh-huh. So... Um, and then have, it's exhausting just hearing you say all that. I mean, that's I know. You know, that's several weeks. Yes, you know, it's a lot of shows. That's several weeks, and that's just a tidbit of you know, right of my life. It just what it takes out of you is just unbelievable. Yeah, and episode twenty nine was called "Still Fighting," and I believe mm-hmm. that's where you you started feeling better, and you knew that you had to keep fighting and. Uh, and that would, you know, eventually produce better results. Yeah, that really affirmed and, and you know, uh, cemented the fact that, you know, it's there's only two ways to go. You either fight or you give. Right. And, you know, thankfully, um, at episode 30, or just before that, started feeling better, uh, like it was coming back up. And don't forget, during the span of the 17 through 29 shows, um in the middle of that, I had gone for the Meg imaging. So right. the the Meg imaging did spark the upward swing with the helplessly hoping in those shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very up and down and just not as quality remission as I'm going through currently. Right. Um, so was feeling better and uh, ended up meeting up with my good friend, Matt, who I worked with seven years ago and, uh, his son had uh, has Asperger's, um, so uh, we wanted to do a show on autism spectrum disorder uh, because my DD and his son. Um, but we had a a good clip actually of um, uh, you know knowing when I knew Matt that my brain was not working correctly, so I was kind of you know half there, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we kind of posed to Matt you know what it was like when he first met me and. This is what he had to say. Really, when when I look back on the time that that we kind of spent together working in this, you know, uh, technical recruiting 
boiler room, if you will, um, obviously the dynamic for you would have been, I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like knowing now what you've been suffering from, because at the time it, I didn't even put two and two together. The, the way that you disguised your thoughts and your feelings and, you know, how you were able to come into work, um, for a period, uh, as I was saying to Ed earlier today, you know, there was a period where, um, you know, you were completely functioning at a, what I would, you know, a quote unquote normal level. And then after, you know, a period of time that started to disintegrate, but still, you know, I, I really, when I first met you, I didn't have any idea that you were suffering from any form of mental illness at all. Um, in fact, I, I thought that you were a, a pretty, you know, well together, put together guy. Um, you know, you were funny as hell. Um, you know, and, and it was, I think a lot of the, you know, and, and I know that you guys in your podcast have talked a lot about just, you know, uh, comedians in general and, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, suffering that goes on behind the scenes. And, and I guess that a lot of your, your battle was being masked with humor and comedy, but I'll tell you, like for the rest of us that were working and, and, you know, when I, I, I'm not sure whether your listeners are going to know what I, what the, that boiler room reference is, but it's really, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, taking calls, making calls, making, you know, a hundred plus phone calls a day, um, trying to place, um, candidates into jobs. And it was, you know, we were working for, um, you know, just the, uh, the worst boss that you could imagine. <laughs> um, it was, it was an awful environment and Doug's humor, you know, kind of kept everyone together and kept everyone going. And I don't even know whether Doug remembers any of this now, but it was, it was something that kept us all together and we never saw a thing. We literally thought that you were just, you know, Doug, the normal, you know, the normal guy who everyone thought was, you know, this hilarious, hilarious guy. Uh, that's, and that's uh, Oscar winning performance, I must say. Um, <laughs> and it's, you, you, that's what happens when you, when you grow up with these things not known about and um, not being treated, uh, not having uh, hands on parents. And so you, you know, it's, you sink or swim, you know, you, you've learned to adapt, you know, in other ways, but unfortunately it runs out as we've seen with many a comedian specifically, mm -hmm. you know, it just, uh, sure. but sure you can't help, but like them, you know, cause all they want to do is be liked. So they're going to, they're going to, they're clown over clowns, you know, you just do dancing and dance, whatever. Love me, love me. In episode 31, you started talking about peer support, but uh, you ended up having another bad relapse during that time. Yeah, that was a very uh, tough time. That was a really bad relapse. Uh, I mean, it was a 180, and it was uh, it took us away from the show. We had to go on hiatus. Uh, I was just completely not functioning at all. And uh, actually, it was during that time that I went and made it to the hospital and uh, just said, you know, listen, please, we've got to go to the, the second setting. This one's just, I'm falling mm -hmm. uh, because we had already changed the intensity a few times. So we did that. Uh, the next day, 
usually it takes a little while, a couple of weeks to really get the full effect. But the very next day I felt a little bit better, uh, but not great. And then the very next day it was another 180. Back to David Banner and things were swell. And uh, this has been my longest remission of my life. And yeah. uh, the shows reflected that. And we've been, you know, uh, we've had some great shows since then. Yeah, we, we actually came back strong after that hiatus when you started feeling better. Uh, and I remember another memorable show was episode 35 uh, titled Tabula Rasa. Uh, yes, clean we, slate. It means clean slate. Uh, and w that's the show where we talked about a very interesting phenomenon called the Mandela effect. You remember a movie, uh, where Sinbad, you know, the great actor comedian, <laughs> uh, Sinbad, where he played a genie. Well, sure. That was, uh, Shazam or something, wasn't it? Ah, well, a lot of people remember this movie. Yet it never existed. What? Uh, it's, it's a false memory. Um, it's called the Mandela effect. Um, Nelson Mandela? Well, yeah, it's named after Nelson Mandela because a lot of people have the same shared false memory that Nelson Mandela died in jail in the 80s. Yet huh. he actually did not. He died in 2013, I think it was. Wild. So, yeah, it's basically... Uh, Mandela effect refers to a group false memory uh, where lots of people have the same false memory, like this Sinbad movie where he was a genie called Shazam. Well, it never existed. Well, there was uh, Sha uh, Shaq did a movie also it was a genie. Yes, and that was called Kazam. So obviously I think there's a mix-up in the brain where you attribute uh, one actor with another and one movie with with the wrong actor. So it's uh, a so, false association in a sense, because these are two tall black men playing right. genies. Right. At the, around the same time. Exactly. And interesting. The, the really interesting part about it are the people who are adamant that the movie existed. And even to the point where, and this is where I think the brain tries to justify what it believes to be true. Like this one guy was saying that uh, he remembers when the Shaq movie came out, he remembers thinking, what a ripoff of Sinbad's movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it never happened. It never happened. The rest of the shows have gone great since then. Your record-breaking remission is still in full force. Hallelujah. Yeah. Uh, so one good example of a recent show uh, that stands out is show number 37, Food for Thought. Uh, with special guest Mitchell Drew, Doug's nephew, uh, where we pose to him the question of having versus being. Mitch, what's your, as an idealist and, and, uh, and a rocketeer, um, what's your take on, on people uh, having versus being? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's kind of a, a conflict that, that I'm, I've been hyper aware of for, for a while, you know, with technology developing, how it is everyone having their smartphones and everything. I think, uh, I've definitely seen a lot of ways that that kind of takes people out of the moment, which, mm -hmm. uh, I think is definitely an issue with the, you know, in certain scenarios, 
like uh, you know, you mentioned that I'm a I'm an avid concert goer, so I see. I was just going to say, and that's being in, yeah. in the moment. Yeah, that's, that's being yeah. in the moment. But then you see all these people pulling out their cell phones to to take videos of the show, and they're they're you know watching the show through their four inch screen, as opposed to actually being there and watching the show. They'd rather just have those memories for later that rather than actually you know be fully in them. Or showing others and needing others' approval, or can you know? Right, yeah, you're showing it, yeah, posting it on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, just for validation, rather yeah, than you know, that, just enjoying it. I'll admit I've been guilty of this. Uh, when I've gone to shows, sometimes I do pull out the camera and record uh, a post. song. Be a great post, yeah. And, and yeah. yeah, exactly. When I'm I'm thinking, oh, people are gonna love this when I post this. Uh, and what I noticed was the songs that I actually record, like I went to a Who concert uh, a couple years ago. Uh, and as you know, the Who is my all-time favorite band. Yeah. Um, so this was a you know huge thing for me. I mean, I've seen them before, but this was you know on another level. And uh, when they played the song 515, again, which happens to be one of my favorite songs by the Who, uh, I... I pulled out my phone and I'm like, I have to record this. You know, I, I, this is one of those moments. Right. And I want to remember it forever. So I recorded the whole song and I, and then I have the video and I, I uploaded it to YouTube. And, um, but the interesting part is I don't remember, I, I don't feel like I was there watching that particular song. Uh, I remember it as the video. So, yeah, it's it takes you out of the moment slightly. Um, it, became, it added a filter, yeah, to it, and right, and exactly. So, that's sociologically, then people are kind of remove themselves even more from the the direct contact of others, which could cause a lot of bad things to happen. Yeah, Some and good this, things, I suppose. Well, too. It, but. in this case, it's a double edged sword. Of course, I, I mean, in this case. Uh, the, the good is that I have that memory now, you know, recorded and I can watch it back and, and look at how amazing that performance was. The negative is that that is my memory of it. What that recording is the memory, yeah. the actual memory of being in the stadium, watching them play with all the people around me cheering and everything, uh, is lost on, on that particular song. I put Thank my you. phone away after that and just watched the show. And that, you know, the rest of it was just like, okay, now I'm here and I can really absorb it in the now. So that pretty much wraps up our show for today. Uh, but I wanted to leave you with something uh, from our last show. Uh, Doug kind of caught me off guard during the intro. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's pretty funny. It slipped, but we left it in. Yeah. <laughs> I want to start today's show with a big congratulations to you, Doug, for beating your remission record. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So as of Friday, today is Sunday. As of Friday, you tied your record at three months, and now you've beaten it. I always feels good when I'm beating it. Um. <laughs> okay, we'll just leave that there. That's our show for today. We want to thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. 
please follow us on Twitter at UnhingedPC, and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash unhingedpodcast. Also be sure to check out our website if you haven't done so already. It's at unhingedpodcast.com. We'll see you all in two weeks. <laughs>